Audio conversation recorded Thursday, October 29th, 2011. This audio podcast features uh, the authors Walter Bosley and his co-author Richard Spence, and we talk about their recent book, which is just out, titled Empire of the Wheel. Um, This book is a little bit complex. I'm going to try to give a little rundown of it here. Um, And I would also recommend to anyone listening to also listen to the audio podcast from Greg Bishop on his series titled Radio Mysterioso. I will include a link in the show notes. On that show, which was recorded about a month ago, uh, Walter and Richard and Greg Bishop talk about the content of the book. In this audio podcast, we're going to talk less about the content of the book and more about the process of writing the book. Uh, it seems that the the writing of this mystery book uh, was plagued with certain synchronicities, and I found that fascinating. There's something eerie about the content of the book, and it gets even more strange when you add into it the uh, the odd life events, and the curious synchronicities that surround this very unsettling mystery. Now, before I give a little synopsis of the book, I just want to make folks uh, aware that Walter was a guest on this podcast series about exactly a year ago, and that is also what I consider a very good interview. I will also link to that on the show notes, and from those uh, show notes, there are a handful of uh, other links to other interviews he's done. Uh, He's quite a skilled speaker. And one of the things I will also do uh, just before the interview starts, I will play an excerpt of the book as read by Walter. Um, He did this at the very end of the interview, and I think it fits a little better at the beginning. It will give you a flavor of the the tone of the book. And he's a very skilled um, speaker, so uh, it, it plays out very nicely. Okay, and before the interview starts, I want to try to do a succinct little uh, rundown of the content of the book, which will not be easy because the book does get fairly complicated. The book centers around some events that took place in 1915 in San Bernardino, California. The story, as it unfolds, revolves around a series of murders. There are seven murders that take place in a, at, at what the time was a small town, and um, it's done through looking at coroner's reports, at police reports, uh, through newspaper clippings, and uh, the, the story that unfolds is quite unsettling. Three of the people who are killed are poisoned, and, and two of them are very young children. So it's a very distressing and, and creepy uh, set of murders. Uh, at no point in the uh, newspaper clippings does anyone make the connection that these seven murders may be connected. Uh, I think three of the deaths were ruled as suicide, but even a cursory look at those uh, those fatalities uh, makes one ponder the fact that they might not be suicides at all. They might be something more complex. As the narrative in the story or excuse me, as this narrative in the case uh, progresses, things get proceedingly more and more strange. Uh, One of the characters that shows up is none other than Aleister Crowley, who seems to have traveled through San Bernardino in the height of this murder spree. Uh, No 
uh, good information on what he may or may not have been doing there, or there is actually no good information if he was in any way involved. But the when the threads start getting pulled, you sense that there could be some occult underpinnings to these uh, these dark events. Um, and then once you look at the days on the calendar when these take place, in a frightening way, they line up with ancient occult rituals that would have taken place in long-ago Greece. Uh, these would have been festival days and um, ceremonial days for the goddess Hecate, uh, the goddess of the underworld. So the the events get very eerie. And um, as the book comes to a close, there is some unsettling stuff that, that uh, plays around the Zodiac killings, which took place just about exactly 50 years after the events of 1915. Now, add to this strange mix, there is a bunch of information uh, surrounding ley lines, or the convergence of, of land lines, what would be geomorphic uh, lines that would have some sort of telluric current running through them. Uh, these lines um, are very much a reality in the eyes of some researchers, and they're, they're the clues that overlap with these ley lines you know, just add to the richness and the and the creepiness to this whole case. So uh, that that's a very short and succinct rundown of the book, and uh, and now I want to play a very short clip of Walter reading from the book. And this is a this is an excerpt that takes place near the end of the book. And I thought this excerpt summed up the mood of the book very well. So here you go. Here's Walter's voice reading from his book Empire of the Wheel. There is one possible alternative to the sinister conspiracy or homicidal spree we have proposed here. It may be that we have simply stumbled upon the fabric of space and time. It is possible that by pulling the threads of synchronicity, we have opened a hole in the veil that separates us from reality as we accept it, and reality as it is actually woven. If one begins to perceive the karmic frequencies that exist between people and places and events played out between them, one becomes exposed to a roadmap of destinies and fates. There may only be so many possibilities, thus explaining a repetition of recognizable patterns. It could be that there are only so many roles, and in an era after era, they are performed again and again. Left behind is a memory theater evident in names and numbers and places and faces, visible for those who choose to see it. As disturbing as the idea of the predetermined life may be to some, the possibility of the predictive nature of this tapestry we present could be frightening. It may be easier at the end of the day to accept the comparatively lesser problems of a serial killer or the homicidal vision of a megalomaniacal group. May, might, what if? Questions without answers. Ah, yes, questions without answers. This is very much the flavor of this mystery. Uh, okay, I'm going to jump right into the interview now, featuring Walter Bosley and his co-author Richard Spence, and we will be talking about the book Empire of the Wheel. Please enjoy. 
Hey, I would like to thank both of you so much, uh, Walter and Richard, for saying yes to this interview. Uh, thanks for having us on, Mike. Always good to be here, Mike. Great. And, and I have just completed, just uh, the other night, I finished reading the book, The Empire of the Wheel, and I was very impressed with it. It's just, it's uh, uh, kind of a... I wasn't sure where it was going at the beginning, and you know, as you're turning the final pages there, it, it's, there's something profoundly eerie and spooky about the story. What I would love to do is, in our, and we can get to this in shortly, but I, one of the things I'm very interested in is the actual process of writing the book. The, the, you, you share a lot about the content of the book in uh, an interview you did with Greg Bishop on Radio Mysterioso. But um, just for the folks who haven't heard that, could uh, either one of you or both of you uh, tag team it and just give a, just a short rundown of the, of the content of the book? Well, I'll let Walter go first on this, because <laughs> he's the one who came to the idea uh, to me. Uh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, but Rick's probably better at uh, uh, <laughs> putting it succinctly, I'll tell you. Um, I loved that interview with uh, Greg on Radio Mysterioso. Um, Empire of the Wheel is a presentation, an introduction to a mystery that's almost 100 years old that very possibly has some implications for us today. Um, it is, on one hand, um, primarily a true crime book. It presents what we suggest and suspect may have been some serial killings that occurred in 1915 in San Bernardino. And through exploring the various associations and clues and suggestions it then gets into being a book of questions um, that lead to um, a, a lot of bigger and more far-reaching um, possibilities um, involved in what is essentially a mystery that has gone uh, hidden for almost a century. Yeah, I think if I can chime in here a bit. I think Walter gave a, a basic, a good synopsis of the book. You know, you said that, uh, talking to Mike, that uh, as you were reading the book, you were sometimes uncertain as to as to where it was going to go. And I'd say that, uh, you know, I had the same feeling <laughs> in, uh, in putting it together. Um, I just say that, you know, from, from my end of things, that uh, I think as you were saying, Mike, that when you were reading the book, you were sometimes wondering where it was going and uh that was exactly the same feeling that i had very often i think probably walter did too um it, it, like any kind of work there's uh there's a process of of evolution which takes place or at least some sort of uh change depending upon you know the various theories that you, you know we, we, we had ideas that we rejected we had new ideas that came in uh one little piece of information can suddenly open up an avenue you hadn't considered or can close off another one and uh i you know i say i really sort of wondered where it was going and i'd have to say that even after it's finished i sometimes wonder exactly where it is uh, it is a mystery and one of the things that we don't purport to do is to take that mystery and tie it up uh, with a neat little bow and present it as solved. Um, pretty much, that, that's one of the things the readers are going to have to sort through, and they're going to have to do a lot of critical thinking and uh, 
make some decisions on their own as to what they accept and what they don't accept and, and what parts of the mysteries most, most appeal to them. Great. Um, here, let me just read something that I have written down that I, that I prepared uh, just ahead of time here. Um, at the end of the August 1st Radio Mysterioso interview with Greg, he asked um, to both of you, what changed in you as a result of researching and writing this book? And then, um, and here's the direct quote, and this is, um, uh, Richard, this is what you said. I learned a new appreciation of synchronicity. I have to admit, when the term was explained to me years ago, I thought it was just kind of dumb. And now I have learned, quite often painfully, just what synchronicity is, and also, in some cases, how scary it can be but how wondrous it can be at the same time. There are things that just didn't make it into the book. There were things that were interesting, but of a topic in and of itself. It's given me a new appreciation of the presence and power of synchronicity in human affairs. Now, when I heard that at the end of that interview, like I will say that got my attention. Okay. Well, I don't know how much I, I could add to it. It's... Um... Or I guess you know, just I, a, I, you can give me a, an example. I suspect. I guess. Well, I'll give you an idea in sort of the the uh, the research that I'm mostly involved in uh, centers more around espionage and and political intrigue. And uh, as somebody once put it, one of the things that I work on is the, is the career of people who are sort of crooks and liars. Um, and in particular, I. Uh, did a, a biography of a fellow who's some people, some of your listeners may know, Sidney Riley, who's there was a whole like Sam Neill miniseries of some, you know, back in back in the eighties, which is run constantly on, on PBS. And Riley in many ways is a very fascinating and complex character, but uh, one of the things I found as an historian trying to piece his life together is that basically everything he ever told anyone about his origins, uh, any sort of personal facts about himself, were a lie. Okay. Uh, and that uh, after going, you know, after spending years sort of researching him, that the, the two things that I cannot, and I would defy anybody else to, to tell you with absolute certainty as to exactly who he was, that is, who he was, what, who was he when he was born, and also precisely how and where and when exactly he died. Stuff in between you can sort out pretty well, but those are fairly obscure. So... Part of that, I guess, sort of fits into this idea that one of the things uh, is, is that within, within history itself, within any kind of events that happen in, in the sort of phenomenal world, there's a big uncertainty principle. Um, you know, I suppose it's, it's kind of trite to say that, you know, three people can witness the same thing and they can see different things in it. But there's really a, a constant level of uncertainty about exactly what happens. Yet the other thing that and it's not just an empire of the wheel, but in the research I did on Riley and, and the book that I did on Crowley and his connection to intelligence and other work that I'm doing, one of the things you would, you would constantly stumble across is that various odd little things would begin to fit together. I, I think actually in that show that, that Greg Bishop said something to the effect that if you stare into the abyss long enough, it will stare back at you. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but in some ways, that when you begin to focus attention on on something, it's as if these little these pieces begin to fall into place. And the spooky part about it is that this doesn't appear to be just 
just accidental. That things begin to assume, I don't know, for lack of a better term, they assume a kind of life or momentum of their, of their own. The other thing about it is that it's not always clear that even though this, these things are happening, as to exactly what they mean. Um, I'll give you an example. You can cut this out if it doesn't work into it. This sort of comes from my, I, I'm, you know, personally, I can't claim any big contact with, with the paranormal or anything of that kind. I have to sort of sift through uh, my experience to come up with anything that might pass for it. But here's, here's one of the things. Going back many years, I seem to have this peculiar affinity for the number 52, which adds actually no particular... See, I wasn't born in 1952. It doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, but it's one of those things that I suspect that some of your listeners, perhaps even you, could identify with. There were periods of time when this number would show up in any sorts of just Monday. They would just congregate around me. Um, I mean, you know, the old idea of having a book spontaneously fall off to a shelf and it falls open to page 252. Well, that actually happened once in a library, along with a lot of other things. Uh, to this day, I have absolutely no idea what this means. And the simplest way to rationalize that is that once you begin to pay attention to something, you just begin to notice it more and therefore assume it's a greater uh, significance that it would actually have. If I could rationalize it away with that I would I would be more than happy to but the point is is that uh, I'm not crazy and I'm not a fool and I'm not imagining things and that doesn't explain it so here was something I don't know what it means but it was a phenomenon which took place and there are other things like that and and I think if nothing else in Empire of the Wheel if if it doesn't boil down to anything else, what you have here is a very strange, and I'd even use the term eerie set of not coincidences, but the synchronicity of events. All right? Even if these people who die in the book, even if all of these deaths are otherwise unconnected, they're connected by something. And I'm still not absolutely certain what that something is. Great, and that's the flavor of the book, and that's what made the book so... Um, eerie and mysterious. I guess a mystery is mysterious in its own right, but this one, mm -hmm. this one has a level of mysteriousness that sets it apart. And and I thought that um, you know the the uh, the writing painted a picture very well of of uh, you know all the possibilities. Yeah. Okay. So so Richard, let me. Um, you are an author, and you've written now. How many books have you written? Uh, I'm I'm I've written three. Uh, not counting. Oh well. And then with Walter, I've written this one to the fourth, and then I'm working on another one. Um, I should probably have written more, but <laughs> I don't pick easy things to write on for one reason or another. So you wrote a book on Crowley, Alistair Crowley, called Secret Agent 666. I, uh, I, wrote a, I started out writing a biography of a Russian political adventure named, adventurer named Boris Savinkov, uh, another kind of liar and crook in his own way. And then that segued me into, because Savinkoff was connected to Riley, I then did a book, Trust No One, which was about Riley and the sort of world of intrigue he operated in. Uh, and then that got me more deeply interested in espionage, and then that uh, took me to uh, the book on Crowley and his connection and uh, the occultism's connection to British intelligence, 
which was Secret Agent 666. Uh, and then I guess it was that that in some way uh, got Walter's attention and that ended up us, us collaborating on Empire of the Wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, and currently, I'm working on, well, I was juggling things, but the, uh, the work which is probably the most central to this is, uh, is work on uh, American spies in revolutionary Russia. Okay, and of course, everybody knows there were no American spies, except there were. Mm-hmm. Huh, and and uh, the uh, listeners should know that this phone call is taking place. You are talking to me from Moscow. I am talking from Moscow, Idaho. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's so. Uh, they, they always, as they, or as they say it here, Moscow, as opposed to Moscow. Yes. And yeah. uh, and I will reveal to the uh, listening audience that I am also talking from uh, the beautiful state of Idaho. So. But way down at the other end of it, I think. Yes, I'm. I'm about one mile from the Wyoming border where I sit yes, here. Yes, perilously close to Wyoming. And you're perilously close to Oregon, aren't you? Uh, Washington. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay, so you're a little lower yeah, on, on, yeah. The, on the map there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. So here, Walter, I'm going to read a little quote that you said at the end of the that same response to Greg mm-hmm. when he asked, uh, you know, what changed in you as a result of writing this book. And you wrote. Uh, It would take a show in itself to describe what changed for me, or on a personal level, what I got out of it. I'll just say this. When you look into the abyss, it looks back. I definitely learned that. So, um, and now you have your whole show to talk about it. Did Greg and I use the same phrase in the same show? I am not sure, but this is the twice (laughs) that phrase has shown up in this show. Somebody did. I think it was was Walter that used it in that show. Uh, Yes, okay. Well, I know I I think all three of us might have, you know, Greg and I usually are sitting right next to each other. We can bonk each other on the head, you know, like they do in Punch and Judy. But um, yes, um, for me, you know, I've been interested in the weird from the time I was a kid. My dad introduced me to UFOs, and and then you know from there in my teen years. And and yes, I've written about it and spoken about it elsewhere. Of course, that um, I've had some strange experiences. Um, I think that's probably why I ended up um, in the profession I was in, uh, kind of am in. I'm still a licensed PI, and uh, my primary function has been really as a professional observer. um, You know, my specialty being surveillance, you know, think about it. My job is to, um, as, as Sean Connery says in The Untouchables, you know, you're not supposed to uh, make something happen. You're not supposed to want something to happen. You're supposed to sit and watch and see what does happen. And I, I don't know if it's because I'm somebody who, where the paranormal is concerned, um, I'm one of those that I may not always be able to explain it satisfactorily to someone else. Actually, probably, you know, just an extent of the spectrum of reality that we haven't quite grasped yet um, with or, or, or been able to place a, a more scientific identifying label on. Um, it, in other words, a spectrum of reality. Um, I, I, I think that's a lot of what's going on. Is um, It's just like you know a dog being able to hear you know audio on a level of the spectrum that humans cannot. Uh, that's the way I look at it. And sometimes, if the conditions are right, we human beings um, will experience what we call the paranormal and the extraordinary, um, and uh, it, it naturally will, 
you know, will seem spooky to us uh, because it is so out of the, the norm, the center of the spectrum there. And I think it's interesting that consciousness comes into play because there are billions of people who, you know, would say that they've never experienced any of this. And I would say that's probably because they're not interested in it. They choose not to. And in that consciousness factor, you know, the, the, the lack of interest. And I don't mean that in a negative way particularly, just the lack of interest, the lack of willingness. Okay, so it's not going to show itself to you, which goes back to the abyss statement. Um, so coming from all that background and that position, I still, after stumbling upon this um, and digging deeper into it, it really um, revealed even more to me um, in a realm that I was already kind of standing on the edge of or had, had stepped into um, to some degree, to some extent, but I don't think I'd ever stepped as deeply into it. Um, and it certainly, in a way that I had rarely, if ever, experienced before in whatever strange experiences I'd had, um, it really kind of reached out and tapped me on the shoulder in ways with uh, this particular instance that, than, you know, than ever before. I, you know, the Disneyland experience, that's kind of different from what I experienced with this book. That's kind of a looking back on it and analyzing the circumstances. You go, hmm, I wonder what if. But this was, um, this was a little bit more intense than, than the Disneyland experience that I've written about. And, and the, the, the fact that you say that, which is, is implied a little bit in the book, but um, and not so overtly as you're saying it right now, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, it's, uh, synchronicities, a lot of people have a lot of theories on synchronicity and a lot of people talk about it. The simplest thing I can um, say about synchronicity, and I've had a lot of experience with synchronicity, is that it is something is telling you to pay attention. And by the mere fact that you say that there was the, the, the process of writing this book was so rife with, with your own set of uh, profound synchronicities, uh, it is telling me that I should pay attention to this book and especially pay attention to the, some of the speculation you do in the book. Well, yeah, I particularly um, where some of the darker <laughs> suggestions, uh, you know, in, in a practical sense, if you'd like to avoid, um, you know, uh, what the book suggests uh, some people are doing out there, yeah, absolutely, be, be quite a bit more aware um, kind of don't go down certain dark alleys, um, you know, that, that kind of suggestion. But uh, sure, it, um, I think it can only, you know, there's a reason um, in, in the ancient world or whatever in the, in the, in the past that uh, like certain religions um, in Judaism, for example, you know, you had to be 40 years old before you were allowed to be exposed to Kabbalah, that sort of thing. And, and I've wondered about that. I've wondered if that if, if there's something in human consciousness that cannot handle certain things on the tangible, so to speak, tangible level, um, until the, the physical body and the consciousness actually reach a certain threshold. You know, maybe there's something about, you know, human consciousness that you, you, you have to reach a, a certain age, a certain level of maturity before you can handle being exposed to it because it will expose you 
to these very strange and very difficult to uh, uh, label, difficult to explain realities. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, would I, would I have even recognized what now I recognize? Would I have, you know, rejected? Um, would it have, well, I'll tell you right now, it probably would have uh, spooked me a little bit too much to look any further. Whereas now, I'm just old enough and out of my mind enough to say, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> I'll look deeper. Um, maybe I'm a fool. But um, it, 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 again, it all goes back to my philosophy is um, I'm a natural observer. It's like, yeah, let's, let's look at this. Let's take a look at it. Let's experience it. That, that's where I'm coming from. Um, and I try to balance that with the fact that I am also a professionally trained criminal investigator. And, uh, you know, you're, you're supposed to gather facts and, and present, you know, what you find that is, you know, that can be taken seriously um, by people who may not be so open-minded to what we call extraordinary and paranormal. And um, this book, this case, if you want to call it that, um, I do, um, the challenge in that was I just decided, okay, th this book will not be about me and my experiences. This book is about this case and these people and what might have been going on here. And, you know, I, I think the mystery is enough that people want to read about that. And, you know, I'm glad to talk about those other things, but um, I, I decided that the, the smart investigator thing to do was, you know, this book should be about the case and about them. Yeah, very good. Very good. Um, I, I can't describe what changed for me other than my perception of things. Um, and I, what I mean by that is, I feel like a door has been opened, a door of, um, of um, into a new perception, a new way of looking at things, a new way of researching. So I don't know if, if I'm changed so much as merely my perception of reality um, has expanded is, is really the, the, the most accurate way I can state it at this point in time. I don't know, maybe I'm in the process of changing, and down the road I'll be able to say, aha, okay, here, here's the answer to your question. Now, as far as, and this goes for, for you too, Richard, um, you were doing a fact-based book uh, looking into a case, a mystery, over 100 years old. How much did you use your intuition? You know, how often did your gut take control of the steering wheel in, in the way you were driving this investigation? And either of you can chime in. Uh, well, I'll, I'll jump in on that. Um, supposedly there's an, an old saying, intelligence, that you, you know, you always trust your gut. Um, and I'm not sure that that is true 100% of the time, but I'd say that, again, in, in this case, in Empire of the Wheel and in the other research that I've done and that I'm doing, I rely upon... You know what you can either call a hunch or a gut instinct, uh, a sneaking suspicion. I think it's a little bit more than that. Pretty often, uh, and I'd say that certainly in more cases than not, that proves to be the right way to go. Um, there's another old saying that I that I like just because it's nice and cryptic, which is that nothing is what it seems except when it's exactly what it seems. Um, 
And while that may be sort of sin-like in its implications, I've also found that to be a uh, a, a pretty pretty useful useful guide. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I um, am I still on with you you're guys? Still on. You sound yeah, great. you're right okay. here. We can hear I, you. My, there was an X next to my name. Um, being someone who's been a spook, essentially, you know, in in various degrees for uh, several years. Um, yeah, there, what, what it is, to elaborate further on what Rick was saying, yeah, they're absolutely, depending upon what you're doing in, you know, the Intel game at the moment, there are absolutely certain tasks where you trust that intuition, you trust the gut feeling. And I can tell you that's definitely when you're doing um, discrete uh, surveillance. You know, when, when you're really out there doing the, the boots-on-the-ground spook work, However, then there are times when I have my investigator hat on, when I'm just being the, the hard investigator, that there's where the importance and the reliance on the facts come in, you know, the, the actual true details, the, the actual facts, the hard realities, because those are the things that are going to trump you know all the other uh, all the other questionable elements. So what I'm saying is, you lo- what you learn is when to trust the instinct, and when to stick to the facts. And it 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 can be some people see it as an art, and and maybe it is. Maybe that's why some people don't do it very long, and others do it a lifetime. Um, you have to love, um, you have to embrace that inquisitive side of your nature and just go with it. I look at it as, to me, this whole thing was just a whirlwind that I'm still kind of writing. And, um, but, the, but the ideas where the practical side comes in is, okay, I'm on this whirlwind and I may be experiencing this, that, and the other, but remember, my job is to present what I observe and try not to make judgment calls for everybody else or for, for the reader. The reader has to judge for themselves. And I think Rick and I, with this book, we emphasize that more than one place. We're not, we, we can't answer all your questions because we can't answer all ours. Um, that's, a lot of it is for you to decide. All we can do is present what is there, what we dug out, and um, what happened, what we found when we pulled certain threads. Um, it's, it's a balancing act. Now the genesis of the story, if I'm not mistaken, and this is, and, and I'm, was it? It goes back to the ley lines and the carousel that was located in um, San Bernardino. Yeah, well, actually, it goes back to, um, and, and here's where some folks out there have trouble reconciling my background with what I do on the side. You know, former federal agent and you know, guy in the intel world, that kind of thing, with, uh, you know, having written a book about Disneyland and ley lines and strange phenomena. And all I can say is, you know, get over it. We're all complex individuals. Um, but what I was doing was I was continuing the research that um, I had started in for the Disneyland book. And I was just basically following the ley lines from Disneyland just to see where they'd lead. And a couple of, couple of them go right through the Inland Empire and connect to others, of course, intersect with others that go through um, San Bernardino and Riverside and such. And uh, really, in all honesty, I was just, it was what I consider what some people call a fluff piece, just a fun, you know, I was looking at stories of hauntings related with the places along these ley lines. And the haunting uh, that started this whole thing 
was um, one that allegedly has occurred in the Inland Center shopping mall, which was built in 67 in 1967 and is still there. And um, this was my first introduction to Cora Stanton. Um, as I was digging deeper into the research, I discovered that a carousel that I had gone to visit and see and was part of my research in the Disneyland book, um, which is up in Berkeley, California, in Tilden Park, I learned that this carousel, this very one, was built in 1911 for San Bernardino. And it was for the park, Urbita Springs Park, where this woman, Cora Stanton, who is the central figure in our book, was found dead in the lake. Well, talk about synchronicities. Um, there, there's a big whopper, because when I was first introduced to this carousel, I did not know the history of it. It was introduced to me by Seshari, who your listeners and yourself you're familiar with, and, and Rick, of course, now is familiar through his uh, consultations that he gave us on, on the ley line issue in geomorphology. And, and um, that in itself was so intriguing that it, that's one of those threads I'm talking about that you know we pulled and that right there was the genesis of um, I wanted to find out who this Cora Stanton woman was whom my source Ann Walker a local librarian had she had identified this Cora Stanton who died in 1915 with the haunting of Inland Center because Inland Center sits on what used to be Urbita Springs Park and the spot where these hauntings have been occurring used to be where the lake was, and specifically the spot in the lake where the woman Cora Stanton was found dead. Ann Walker, the librarian, believed that the ghost and this Cora Stanton were one and the same. So I went to the uh, archives, newspaper archives, the special collections room, California room at the Feldheim Library downtown, and looked at all the newspaper articles, and uh, that was really when the door opened wide for me on this. Fascinating, fascinating. I'll also add that one of the notes that I made here is that Seshari has, has now worked on two books that take place in California in 1915, which is kind of curious in itself. Yeah, 1915, um, you know, in, in its own way was a very, uh, it, you know, when you get into the synchronicities and you get into the, you know, the high strangeness, I like to call it, um, 1915 seems to have been a, a very important year for, for these things, and we get into it in our book, and uh, Sesh gets into it in his works as well. And um, the Lusitania sank in the early months, I think it was May of 1915, correct? May, yeah. yeah. Yes. And, mm -hmm. then, uh, that, and that sort of goes into Richard's specialty as far as talking about how that may tie into this, these odd events that take place on the Pacific Coast in that same year. Well, there are lots of, again, sort of strange threads of, that could be connected to espionage that are sort of weaving in and around this case. I, I'm not really sure how closely they connect I, I they may have something to do with it they 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 may not um i mean if i could take things back for a minute i it's in terms i think what walter was talking about of sort of stripping things down to the basic facts and the thing that grabbed me about this case and and still does i think is the the thing that really sort of fascinated me is that if you take it down to the the sort of central action here, what you have is a woman's body floating 
in Orbita Springs Lake. All right, that, that seems to be an, a, a very basic fact. You've got a dead woman in the lake. Nobody, it turns out, locally, has the slightest idea who this woman is. Uh, eventually, there is a, a note discovered under, as people who read the book, rather bizarre circumstances, which gives her the name Cora Stanton. But here's one of the things that, you know, that, that sort of struck me, is that the more you try to pin Cora Stanton down, I mean, going through census records, looking around, taking all the various clues that, 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 that come up around her, the less there really is. I mean, she remains. There's a real person. There's a corpse. Okay, this woman was somebody. And yet Cora Stanton, the person that she allegedly was, really doesn't exist. We can't actually find anyone anywhere in the United States who sort of clearly matches this woman. The details about supposedly given about where she came from, where she had taught, none of these things produce any trace of her. So you've got this kind of this, this, this interesting tension to me between a real murder, a real dead woman, and then this kind of phantasmagoric person who comes, this, this, this uh, persona which is apparently invented, and invented for what? Um, again, again, those who read the book will notice that there's even this, this, uh, this figure, Thomas Cavanaugh, who's also a, a, a cipher a man who exists on one day but apparently has no other existence, who's the, who appears as a kind of, uh, to give a testimony as to who Cora Stanton was. Yet even he doesn't really exist. So you're still left with a drowned woman who must have been somebody, and there seems to have been some effort made by someone in order to manufacture what I... Pretty, I could say with a fair degree of certainty, is a bogus identity for. And that leaves us with the mystery why. That's one of the things about it, what you have here isn't just some sort of common, you know, it isn't a garden variety murder, if there is such a thing, and it's not, as it was judged at the time, to be a suicide. Of those things, um, I would be, be pretty firmly convinced. Now, Oh, Richard, you're you're just we just lost some volume on you. Am I back? Keep church, keep talking. Okay. Okay, I'm talking now. Oh, Can you, you hear me? You sound wonderful. You sound wonderful. Okay. 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 I still sound okay. You sound great now. All right. So, where what was I pontificating on? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. You were talking about Cora Stanton. You were talking about uh, that mysterious Thomas Cavanaugh and how these uh, people just appeared out of thin air. Yeah. That when you the more you begin to dig into them, the less you find they don't exist. And yet, she, that is, as a, as a corpse floating in the lake, uh, Cora Stanton, for lack of, of her real name, is, is real. There's no getting around that. You've got a real body. You've got a real coroner's inquest. You've got, you've got a real dead woman. And yet, there's no uh, Cora Stanton, uh, the person that uh, she is, is alleged to be, doesn't exist. And those are things that, again, are not just accidental. I mean, someone, some individual or some group of people uh, made it their business to, to manufacture an identity for this dead woman. And you know, the question is, that why would you do that? Why would one bother to do it? Um, the only answer that would seem to make sense is to obscure what her real identity was. And, and why would that make any difference? And that's where 
possibly, and I'd emphasize possibly, there may be some connection between this dead woman and, in fact, a whole web of intrigue that was taking place in Southern California and throughout the Western United States and throughout the United States. And, I mean, one of the things that people would have to keep in mind here, I'm going to put on my historian hat again, and is that, you know, 1915 is the second year of the First World War. And in 1915, the United States was still ostensibly a neutral country. Uh, on the other hand, it was uh, already financially and economically playing a fairly important war role in the war. Um, and, uh, I mean, that, that, for instance, goes back as to why the, the Lusitania sunk. Um, the Germans sink it not to kill passengers. They sink it to uh, destroy the uh, war supplies that were being carried in its holes, which were there. Um, and the U.S. is a neutral country, financially and economically linked to the war in Europe, is in its own way in this period a kind of secret front of the world war, which means that there were both allied, primarily British, but also some French and Russian, and on the other side, German and some Austrian agents, who were scheming to do all kinds of things, to uh, influence public opinion, to uh, buy up newspapers, to plant stories against each other, uh, and also, by the way, to uh, blow up munitions factories and plant uh, incendiary bombs aboard ships. Uh, and this spread, and also on the German side, to foment revolution in the British Empire by conniving stateside with Irish and Indian nationalists. Uh, and why this may be one of these things that most Americans wouldn't assume was going on. In fact, in fact the West Coast, California, San Francisco, uh, all the way down into Southern California, neighboring Mexico, where there's a civil war going on with uh, German and allied agents at work. All of this stuff is sort of, you know, I mean, People living in San Bernardino in 1915, I would suggest, that weren't really aware of what was going on around them. But there is a war going on, and there is a secret war going on around them. Now, I'd say that, the, that any concrete evidence that uh, Cora Stanton, whoever she was, was connected to any of this intrigue isn't there. But on the other hand, considering what is going on on the broad scale and the fact that we have this unexplained and I think deliberately disguised, or if you prefer the term, occulted death, that there's still, there's still, that's one of the numerous possibilities that come up. But again, I go back to the point that the fundamental mystery in the book is her death and, and just that, and this, this whole constellation of really sort of freaky demises of children, adolescents, this unknown woman, that all take place within a fairly short period of time. And there's one other thing I could sort of maybe go off on a tangent away from. That. It came up in something that Walter was talking about before in terms of how, in terms of how weird this is. And, and this is one of the things that I guess I took away from the experience of, of working on this book is that it made me consider that, all right, we're looking at San Bernardino, California, early 20th century. You know, it's not a big town. It has 12,000 people in it. You know, a sizable town for its day, but certainly small by, by modern standards. And um, 
And is this is this a kind of one-off? In other words, was was what was happening in San Bernardino and the areas around it in the in the, in the uh, Inland Empire in 1915 abnormal? Was this something that's an anomaly, or is it something that just sort of becomes visible? That really happens everywhere and is going on all the time. That is, the idea is that if you poked around into the histories, into the sort of darker recesses and coroner's records uh, and, and crime records of most communities, would you begin to find similar mysteries? And it even made me think about, um, I grew up in a town in the southern San Joaquin Valley in California, not too close to San Bernardino, but a town of many ways not dissimilar in size. Uh, I mean, certainly, that it's, it's much smaller than San Bernardino today. But, um, and it made me sort of think about things that I'd heard my parents or I'd heard my grandmother, who was a, a great collector of gossip and, and various town stories, uh, would mention. And I thought, I don't, I don't know these things. I begin to think about some of these sort of little odd things that had come up. And, uh, well, nobody in, in the place I grew up found a dead woman floating in a lake. Uh, there were things of, probably of, of similar um, odd elements of synchronicity, again, to, to bring up that term. So that's one of the things that I wonder about is just how exceptional this really is. And I think that one of the things that reading the book could do for people, you know, particularly if they're curious about these things, is to sort of awaken their sensibilities to other things in their community or in the world around them. Yeah, very much so. And um, you looked into, in the book, Secret Agent 666, which I have not read, um, mm -hmm. but it's my understanding you talk about, like, the occult influences within... Um, you know, the British Secret Service. Well, it's this kind of, and it's one of the things that I found that I wasn't particularly aware of before I started working on the book. And I guess maybe to explain a little backstory, there is, if people hunt around, and they can probably still find it on the web, the book, Secret Agent 666, basically grew out of an article that I wrote some years before with the same title. And I like that title so much that I used it for the book. I couldn't think of a better one. But what it was, it was actually something that came out of the research I was doing on Riley and who was spent a lot of his time scheming in New York during World War One, And then I realized that, you know, Aleister Crowley was there at the same time, and there were these rumors of his connection to, to British intelligence. And so I, I, you know, I did a little snooping through some, some old files, military intelligence files, and that's where I came up with the kind of, I guess, the, the initial smoking gun in the Crowley case. It was, a, it was an, an American investigative report by the U.S. military intelligence that, in essence, said that uh, we considered this guy suspicious and we were following him around, uh, but the British consulate occur, uh, assures us that it basically tells us to lay off because he's an employee of the British government. And that was the first thing that I had ever seen, and I think existed anywhere, that, in essence, confirmed what Crowley himself on various occasions later said, which was that what I was doing, my apparent you know, pro-German intrigues, were really done with the knowledge and encouragement of British officials. And so in the, in the article, I just sort of sketched that out. Uh, and then, you know, 
you know, questions about the idea that one could take that further, and then I started trying to expand this to look at his whole career. Uh, and that's where you began to bump into the fact that, you know, he, um, you know, Crowley in, um, was sort of spooked up all the way through his career. I mean, rarely does he, you know, uh, to say it, he, he doesn't really turn around in his lifetime without bumping into somebody who's, who's connected to intelligence. And that sort of opened up this whole realm that there is this, and again, I can't tell you exactly what it means, but historically, and not just in the British case, but in Germany, uh, you, can, you can look at the Russian case, is that there is this strong overlap or this constant interpollination between what you could call the occult realm or the paranormal realm and that of intelligence. Um, you have the intelligence exploitation of occult or secret societies, or if you could argue, you have the penetration of official agencies by those societies, but people move between both of them. Uh, I think there's a certain symbiotic relationship that exists between those two things. And if I could tell you exactly why that was the case, I could make things much simpler. But it's, it's there. It's another one of those things like a dead woman floating in the lake. It's there. Then what that means is uh, a matter for uh, a lot more investigation. Yeah, there's a motion. There's a movie that came out a few years ago called The Good Shepherd, and it's a spy story, and it was directed by Robert De Niro. Yeah. And in the in the early part of that movie, there is a um, a sequence that, as far as I can tell, is mimicking some sort of skull and bones secret society initiation at an Eastern college. And uh, and and that that imagery sort of rang through the the Empire of the Wheel story when when there was that overlap between what may have been an occult murder, what may have been somehow related to espionage, the murder, or potentially somehow related to both. Yeah, I mean, those the things aren't mutually exclusive. I guess that's another sort of rule here, is that one thing, A, does not rule out B. Uh, and very often it's not a case of either or, but, but both. I mean, I'll give you an idea again, because I tend to work with you know, researching people who are the, the common sense spies, one of the, the questions is, well, is this person a British agent or are they a Soviet agent? Well, what you find out most of the time is that they're both. Uh, they're, they're, they're working both sides. And uh, so that's, that's you always have to keep your, your mind open. I'm sure Walter is an investigator who preached this to, uh, to all possibilities and not to assume that one automatically excludes others. Yeah, very oh, good. Ab 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 absolutely, yeah. That's that that's that's the truth, and that's where uh, you know you observe what does happen, and you report what you observe, and you know the analysis comes later. You know when you your job is to collect. That's why they call it intelligence collections. That's why you're a collector. Your job is to collect what is there, and then the analysis um, is the, the step after that when you've collected everything you can. You know, I want to throw in um, something. Uh, we're, when Rick was talking about Cora Stanton, um, yeah, absolutely. She's kind of a, you know, who the heck is this? Is Cora Stanton even her real name? On the issue of whether she was involved in the intelligence world, my opinion is that she either was absolutely had nothing to do with the intelligence world or she was doing something right as far as her uh, cover was concerned because whatever happened to her regarding how she died 
um, if she were in the business and the profession, the fact that we cannot identify who she actually was, that she was doing it right. If she was a spy, if she was a spook, she was doing it right, or she was not involved in the business at all. Um, that, that, that would be my professional opinion, you might say, um, on, on her. Uh, but I, I will say that personally, uh, to give some um, oh, evidence or whatever that, uh, th that these two worlds, further evidence, um, you know, the man who was my personal mentor who got me into my career in, in my profession is also the very same man who is my mentor on the esoteric and, and such things. And he spent almost 50 years in the... Uh, the spook world. So, for what that's worth, you know, that's kind of a, a modern day example there that, yes, indeed, um, there are people with feet in both worlds. And that in itself, you could go with that. And, you know, when you ask, hmm, I wonder why that is. Um, one of my opinions is that when you deal in the world of intelligence, you're dealing with um, very sensitive information, information that is usually held close to vest that not everybody is exposed to. That's the nature of the business. And why shouldn't that also include occasionally putting you in positions where you're going to experience the, 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 the strange and the bizarre or, or what would be, let me put it another way, what would be in the realm of the occult? You know, um, to me it makes sense. And this gets very mysterious, and I'm just taking uh, as an aside, one of the things that comes up in the um, UFO research that I've been doing is that there is an overlap between the occult, UFO research, and somehow government influence, or, or the UFO phenomena, let me put it that way, not, not UFO research. And uh, uh, for reasons I don't understand, they all seem to overlap somehow. I, I think that's probably because um, on the practical level, um, look who, you know, the government would have a natural concern, particularly the military from the national defense standpoint, would have a, a natural concern over what the heck are these things flying around in the skies? We need to know what they are. But then on, there's, there's another level in there that I've talked about a lot and that I'm a strong advocate of. Um, you know, I personally think that based on per, you know my experience and, and just what I know, um, and being someone who was an OSI officer and also is a, a civilian interested in UFOs, I want to say a good 80% or so of what people see that are UFOs, actually, it, it's our technology. And in the telling of their experience, it, th certain things get exaggerated. You know, it, it's, they've never seen anything like this before, so they're all excited and they're saying, yeah, it did this and it did that, and, and it did do those things, but maybe in their excitement, they're kind of exaggerating it a little bit, and they're quick to put the ET label on something that was actually just our advanced technology, which is kind of cool. I mean, I would think people would think, wow, you know, if this is the case, we must have some pretty cool stuff flying around up there, and I can say, yeah, we do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been our practice that... If they tell you that the plane X is the, the most advanced, fastest, whatever, highest flying thing known to man, you can bet your life savings that we've got something that's at least 20 years ahead of that that we're not telling you about. And we're probably lying to you about the capabilities and the ceilings and things like that on what we are telling you about. And you know what? That's all because 
if you have to get into it and use these things, you don't necessarily want the other guy to know everything you can do. You don't want them to know every card you got in your hand. You know, you want them to think your plane is limited when actually it can go the extra inch and whoop your ass. That, that's really the motivation behind all that. And um, anyway, that's why I think that you see the government, naturally the government involvement, interest or whatever in the whole UFO phenomenon. And uh, that goes back to what I was saying before, you know, connected with our mystery and anything that's strange. Um, it's all about information. It's all about having knowledge. It's all about having, you know, kind of an upper hand. Um, and, you know, so naturally, if there's something to something, uh, a situation, you're going to see intelligence agencies, because it, in, in a way, it's kind of their charter to at least take a look at something, um, to at least know it and understand it. Um, that's, you know, that's been my view from my experience with it. With this, yeah, you've got... Um, You've got the spook world, and you've got, and you've got the spook world, if you know what I mean. <laughs> we just had some. We had just had one of those uh, advanced aircraft crash, and someone's microphone sounded like. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 there's not too much I could really add to this. I've never been particularly interested in in UFOs. I find the idea kind of intriguing, but I can't say I've ever paid much attention to them. I've never seen one that I'm aware of. Uh, on the other hand, I've run across any number of people who have. I do have to admit, you know, that as somebody perhaps more on the sort of the, uh, fringes of that, that one of the things that's always come up to me is that why is there, in many cases, what seems to be the, the immediate jumping to the conclusion that if you see something weird flying around, uh, that it's of extraterrestrial origin, where it would seem to be the more likely basic assumption is that it's something which is of terrestrial origin. I mean, why, why do aliens always come into that first? You know, it's, I guess it's kind of a sexier idea. Uh, but I, I've always wondered about that. And so I would, uh, you know, I, I think the idea that uh, that's as much of an assumption as anything else. Going back to this... Um, the, the sort of connection between uh, what, we, what we call occultism and, and, and intelligence is that, you know, I think Walter sort of hit upon a point there that, that a, lot of, a lot of it's about the access of and control of information, which everybody's interested in. It's also about a, a, a climate of secrecy. And that's one of the things that strikes me that I, that I think is a common denominator between occultism and intelligence between those, those two realms is that uh, in both of them you have, I mean the connection I've often made um, secret societies or society with secrets if you prefer um, are and many, or that, that intelligence agencies essentially function as bureaucratic secret societies uh, you don't join them, you're recruited, there's an initiation, there are, there's information imparted to people inside that cannot be shared with those on the outside, uh, that there's a certain privileged awareness which you can have. I mean, that's after all what every occult secret society offers, is that if you join our group, uh, you're going to learn the secrets of the universe, or you're going to have some sort of uh, information or awareness that the common herd doesn't have. And those two, I think that whole sort of mindset, maybe it's simply the fact that people who are attracted to one, that the personality type who's attracted to one area is attracted to the other one inevitably. Maybe that's the connection between them. 
and my thought is that you know the, the overlapping. I mean, when when does uh, information gathering, you know, on some level it's taking place electronically through through listening devices, and maybe on another level it's taking place through occult matters. You know, by I mean metaphorically gazing into the crystal ball, um, and I just see the dark arts as as just another tool to maybe have an influence on people in a way uh, that would be different than having an influence on them um, by, uh, you know, let's say blowing up their car while they're in it. Well, yeah, I mean, if you could put a death curse on them and kill them that way rather than with a bomb, that would be a, a much more discreet way to do it. And while that may be utterly fictional and we might think the idea is silly, you have to think about it from an institutional point of view. What if, I mean, that possibility exists? And do you want to not explore the possibility of that just in case somebody over the Kremlin is doing so? Um, and I think, I mean, I think we, you get some sense of this when you get into the, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's been generally acknowledged is that uh, the, the, the U.S. military and I think probably CIA and others have, have toyed around, as they generally put it, with things like remote viewing, which sounds, you know, and you put a kind of scientific gloss on it, but that sounds a little like crystal ball gazing to me, that they're willing to, to, to look into that. Um, you know, even if nothing else comes out of it, you're going to explore the the possibilities. One of the things I've come across, somebody I suspect nobody has uh, much heard of uh, this side, but in the 1920s, uh, Soviet intelligence was very much into those ideas. And in fact, under a guy by the name of Dr. Alexander Barchenko, who was not a real doctor, but used the title, Barchenko was sort of set up with an entire psi lab uh, funded by... Uh, the uh, and supported by elements within what was called the uh, the Agpu, sort of the early version of the KGB, to carry out research in all kinds of things. Um, I mean, everything from uh, ESP, uh, you know, uh, thought transference, uh, the influence of individuals, you know, things that actually, in a way, sounded like putting death curses on people, and um, these were these were all things that I mean, there, there were people in the Soviet hierarchy who thought that that was absurd. Uh, there were others, however, many of them members of occult secret societies, uh, who thought that that was a wonderful idea to, for, to explore. And then the general argument was given is that if this is actually the case, I mean, if, if we can find anything here, then we need to use it. Uh, I mean, one idea was the, and the tremendous advantage, you know, one of the things that intelligence relies on are codes. And so you're always having to come up with new codes and code books and cipher system, and your opponents are trying to break them. Well, if you could transfer information from one mind to another, if you could use, in effect, occult means to transfer or to get into people's heads and extract that information, that would be a tremendous practical intelligence tool. And that may be it. We tend to think of this stuff as kind of like mumbo-jumbo, but there would be practical applications for that. And that was, is also what I think tends to, to draw them in. And the term mumbo-jumbo is, is uh, you know, it's, this stuff is so easy to dismiss in a way that would be its best cover. Um, yeah. Because, you know, oh, it's... Sure. 
it's absurd yeah, on its yeah. on its face given you know what we you, you don't open the new york times and read about occult societies so these things are somehow hidden from our daily lives um i will add this is just going back to my own uh research into the ufo phenomena um i have met a series of individuals and i want to this is all i want to keep you know it's private on their part but um and they have shared stories of what amounts to uh, practices of mind control, you know, in their lives. Uh, this gets into the MK Ultra type stuff, and somehow in woven in that story, there is also occult influences. You know, whether they are using, uh, you know, what tools they're using. The tools that they're using sound uh, suspiciously like occult tools rather than technological tools. And for reasons unknown, and we don't have to go down this alley, but I just want to include this, uh, they, their lives have also intersected with the UFO phenomena. And, and I think this term mumbo jumbo, you know, by, you know, two absurd things in their life, uh, the UFO phenomena and the potential for some sort of occult influenced uh, trauma-based mind control, you can dismiss the story completely because both of those elements are so absurd that that uh, no uh, reporter in their right mind would touch the story. Well, you know, um, Mike, you, we, we've, you've led right into, our conversation has led right back into um, the other lady of our mystery, and that is Hecate. Um, as the book uh, goes into, it discusses the goddess Hecate and her fingerprints all throughout this mystery and the subject of uh, the potential of mind control, particularly, say, on, on the public. Um, Hecate uh, seems to pop up there in other instances. Um, for instance, uh, James Shelby Downard and Mike Hoffman's um, legendary essay, King Kill 33, in which it discusses the JFK assassination, and you find Hecate in that. And we, of course, as Empire of the Wheel uh, goes into great detail on, Hecate is involved, or let's say has a presence in that. And um, y y this serves to suggest what are they doing with the occult to influence individuals and the masses? Uh, because, and, and, and what, do, what do these various symbols and these various personages in the, in, in the occult realm that are popular with the occult realm, such as the goddess Hecate, what exactly are they saying to the human subconscious? And... In our mystery, in San Bernardino in 1915, which we call this what went on, we suggest a name for it, we call it the San Bernardino working, um, sure, there was something going on here, possibly on a, on a private level, but there also seems possibly to have been something going on to affect the population in a way that maybe they didn't understand. The way that Downard and Hoffman also suggest with the JFK assassination in their essay, King Kill 33. Um, it, it all, it, 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 that's what I find really interesting with our mystery in our book is all these things we're talking about, this mystery in San Bernardino in 1915 appears to have the hallmarks of having been part of that process that led us to 
what was really going on with the JFK assassination, what was really going on, you know, perhaps with other events that shocked the public into a state of mind. Um, you know, some people suggest various levels with 9-11. Um, some, some people I know, I've thought about various levels of the, uh, if you remember, the Challenger disaster, you know, America's first since, you know, that early Apollo disaster on the launch pad, our first, you know, major disaster in space after years and years of having nothing but success, you know, w was something going on there. And I've never examined, you know, any uh, cult or Hecate fingerprints in the Challenger disaster. That might be interesting. But um, all of this we're talking about, kind of what happened in San Bernardino in 1915 might be one of those roots that led up to this conversation. Sessuri is called what Rick and I have written about. He's referred to it as the occult Roswell. He thinks it's much bigger than maybe even we've considered. Um, and I've, I've heard that from other folks um, who have read the book. They think that we, we really have stumbled onto something major and big here. I'll, I'll leave that to, at this point for the, the reader to decide. But um, and, and I, having just finished reading the book, I will have to say that I am perplexed. I can't, I can't jump on that bandwagon. Um, I'm a little too mystified. Um, you know, there is a grandiosity to the story that's, that's hard to deny. It would be, it's, it's difficult to know how those threads connect through to today. Um, and I would here I would this is very interesting because Walter you know um, Sesheri and Richard have you ever met us? Uh, I I I have never met him. No. Have you spoken with him on the phone? No. Um, yeah, I I uh, just the interview I did just before this was with Sesheri, which is a pen name, and um, I think it was one of the best interviews I've ever done on this uh, this podcast series here. And I will have to say that it was remarkable reading these two books back to back. I read his book, Handprint of Atlas, uh, finished it, did an interview with him, and then opened up this book, Empire of the Wheel. And to read those books in tandem, um, I felt like I, I was jump-starting you know, the knowledge that I needed to have as you went down some speculative avenues on what, what may have been uh, at play here. Um, and I don't know if... if Walter, you'd want to talk to his ideas on geomorphology and uh, ley lines and how they pertain to the story. Well, um, that that is a, a big subject, as you know, as your listeners know, that have heard the interview with uh, Sachery and anyone who's uh, read the book Handprint of Atlas, which I strongly recommend if you're interested in this subject. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in a nutshell, in that book, he introduces the reader to the, the concept of... Um, things being consciously done in association with these lines. And when I say things, I mean engineering, civil engineering, railroads. Um, it, it, it's funny, when, when you have a geomorphologist, you know, someone take this and show you where these lines are, it's interesting how you find rail lines and uh, built along these lines, airports, radio towers, um, hospitals, um, it, it's as he proposes in his book, Handprint of Atlas. It's as if there is kind of an open secret amongst engineers that, hey, if you place these things, communications will work better. Um, people will heal better and faster. Um, you know, the, the 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 trains will stay on the track better, or maybe go faster, or whatever. You know, it's just interesting. You know, the the planes will have an easier time. I, I don't know. You know, this would be the the thinking that comes to my mind, and where it applies to Empire of the Wheel is that, um, and this is another aspect of the mystery, 
um, it appears that the deaths of these people um, happened or occurred. Uh, if if they were murders, they were murdered on these lines. Um, Sechery has identified through his application of geomorphology um, and his understanding of these ley lines um, the ley line network or lattice work through the San Bernardino Valley and um, it's very interesting how these victims all died in conjunction or right on or, or as part of right near these lines and um, it, it that's where some of the, the creepiness comes into the book because, well, if it was murder, what was this person thinking? What was the perpetrator thinking by killing these people on the lines? And that gets into the whole notion that um, maybe some type of uh, human sacrifice using occult principles was being conducted here. And um, I, I'll tell you, another book I would refer you to to... to that came out after Empire of the Wheel, came out uh, this year after our book, um, shortly after, is by Joseph P. Farrell and Scott DeHart called Grid of the Gods. And in that book, in their research, when he read Empire of the Wheel, he was, he, he was, he was surprised and impressed because basically we had, you know, gone down the road that he and Scott um, present in their book, and that is that very much so there is this grid on the planet of these lines and they point out in their book that these ancient sacrificial sites particularly of the Aztec and the Maya were right on these lines and they were consciously doing it on these lines now you, you know there's a, an ancient historical uh, you know thematic connection there to what it's one of the possibilities of what was going on in San Bernardino in 1915 but the I think the more disturbing issue, or what extends, makes it even more disturbing, you know, in the bigger picture, is that, as one chapter points out, we seem to have stumbled across the, uh, the, the modus operandi of the Zodiac Killer, because it appears that, like in the ancient world with these human sacrifices, and in 1915 in San Bernardino, possibly, it appears that the Zodiac Killer had attacked, killed, or killed all his victims on ley lines. And uh, that was a night that gave me serious, I'm not kidding, I actually got goosebumps the night I was doing my analysis with the ley line map, which I'd had for a year and a half, the night I made this uh, discovery. And um, it was, you know, Rick and I felt it was substantial enough in the theme that, you know, it was worth having a whole chapter in the book on this, that... Nobody had ever tied together the victims like this before, and the evidence to us suggests that, indeed, all the Zodiac Killer's victims are tied together by having been attacked, killed, on these ley lines. Um, that's kind of what's interesting about that is that's 50 years after our San Bernardino working, and it's a little bit closer to home. That's happened in all, all three of our lifetimes. We can remember that. Is, is someone still doing this today? Now, just to make it even creepier, let's go back to Hecate. Hecate, the goddess, is associated with the number 100. And in the ancient world, she was very often venerated in what's called, um, it's something, the Hecate year, which is two sets of 50. Now, if, somebody indeed was 
venerating Hecate if these San Bernardino deaths were murders. If that's the case, that happened in 1915, and roughly 50 years later, the Zodiac Killer emerges. Well, that's the first 50. Are we going to see possibly another Hecate Killer emerging here in 2015? That might sound a little bit, uh, uh, what's the word for it, um, sensational, but you know, when, when you're looking at what the facts suggest, to me that's the most disturbing possibility. Disturbing enough that this might have been done, you know, could this be done again? I don't know, but uh, that's, to me, one of the most disturbing implications of it. Uh, yes, and that was one of the most powerful chapters of the book. And that's where, when I said, you know, I didn't know quite where the book was going at the beginning, you know, all of a sudden by the end, you know, you're you're tying these threads together in in what seemed like a pretty logical and tidy way. Uh, and then, you know, to, to tap into the Zodiac Killer and then to speculate on what may be happening um, in four short years from now. And then I just did the math here. And if you, you uh, count back 50 years, you know, 50 years before the events in San Bernardino in 1915, that would put you at 1865, which was the the waning days and the bloodiest days of the Civil War. Yeah, see, you know, I've never done this. I don't know, Rick, if you've ever, I'd never thought about that, but um, it'd be interesting to see how many of the major battlefields were on these ley lines. No, that would be something interesting to do. Yeah, you know, I'd have to say that you know the the, the Layla. I I knew vaguely the concept, uh, but most of this was was fairly was fairly new to me. Um, and the one thing I suppose that strikes me is, regardless, and this again I could say to something who's a potential reader, and I, and if someone's looking at this and they go, "Oh, Leyline sounds goofy to me," well, you, you don't have to accept. And I think this is something we keep emphasizing in the book. Uh, is that you don't have to accept something to accept that other people do. I mean, it may be true that all of this stuff is just completely irrational bunk, but that doesn't mean that you know th- 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 there's an endless market for that among human beings. And what right. strikes me about it is that there's a there's a convergence of two things. And if I've got it right, Sesh Hari came up with his ley line, his you know his his telluric grid map well before uh, either Walter and I ever began working on that. I mean, th- th- that's something that yep. stands on its own. And then mm-hmm. on the other hand, you've got the actual, you know, I mean, the fact is these people did die, and they died in a particular place. And when you put those two things together, there is, whatever it means, uh, a, a convergence. And, uh, you know, however it was he came up with, the, with his grid and whatever it may mean, somehow these people and, and the, the Zodiac killings fit into it. And that's, that's the type of thing that you look at it and just, uh, I still have to, I'm not entirely sure what it means, but it's real. The convergence is real, whatever the meaning may be. Yes, and one of the things that I speculate on, and, and, uh, and I've talked with this, to Seshari in his book is that, um, you know, is, is there a need for uh, intent on the part of these criminals that are performing these, you know, heinous acts? Do they have a map and do they pick the location 
or is it something that is welling up from the from the you know the grand uh, neosphere that just that just attracts these characters to these places on the map to perform these deeds in a way that is is uh, almost unknowable to us but but these uh, these lines would have a almost mystical pull at the to the to the psyche to the consciousness uh, or the subconsciousness better way to say it to these uh, criminals and and uh, I don't have an answer to that but that is something that I uh, speculate on you know like you know, that would be that would be difficult to determine which is worse a force that just draws people to to do certain things in a certain place, or people actually being heinous enough to have a map and <laughs> going out there consciously to uh, to do this. Um, and it may be that the the murderer is predisposed to murder, but he's drawn to you know he's going to kill somebody anyway. But maybe he's drawn to do it in a particular place, you know, because of the place. Um, that that's a very a very interesting concept. Uh, definitely something uh, interesting to explore um, further. Um, again, you know, Rick and I emphasize in the book, we say it more than once, the reader does not have to uh, believe in these concepts, him or herself, to see that it appears somebody did. Um, it appears something was going on um, associated with the belief of this. And, um, but, but the idea that people are drawn... To, to certain areas because of something geophysical there, that, that's always, always a fascinating uh, conversation, uh, exercise to look into. I, I suppose it's similar to the idea that you know, there are places that have good vibes and places that have bad vibes. Yeah. Uh, and that may depend upon your perception of what's, of what's, uh, of what's good or bad, but... Um, that would be, you know, that that itself would be another kind of interesting study to see, you know, if if if, if homicides um, have, you know, how, in how many cases patterns of homicides tend to be to link to these lines, or to particular places, um, and I I I suspect you'd find that there's more than a, a casual connection between them. I, somebody who came up was mentioned a while back, and I don't know, Mike, how familiar. Have you run across James Shelby Downard? Sure. Oh, yes. I'm, okay. I'm All right. I, I suppose waters, your yes. listeners. I have to admit that uh, I think it was his memoir, The Carnivals of, of Life and Death, that I read of you. That, that was one of the few books that I have ever literally thrown against the wall in frustration. As, as to how ludicrous it seemed to be, but it also was one of those that no matter how many times I said this guy is just you know which is like this is complete lunatic, uh, and and I must be one to be reading this, that I go and pick it up again, and <laughs> I think as as other people as we're working on this project, time and time again I, I would come back and I would keep thinking well you know this is exactly the type of thing that Downard would would see some significance in this is this is uh this this is this sort of would fit this is a, this downardian world so you could sort of impose take these events and and put them into his context where in their own weird way they made sense um i, I don't know if that's going to make any sense to anyone but it's as if if you know if you sort of believe in the downardian universe then the things we're talking about make perfect sense there they all sort of fit into this this murky, 
constant, you know, this, this uh, uh, you know, revelation of the method, uh, sort of constant, you know, ritual horror show, which is, which is taking place in seemingly mundane events and in mundane places. Yes, and that is actually the stuff that, that fascinates me, that's sort of underlying uh, mythology almost, that's, that's playing out um, you know, between the lines of the, of the uh, headlines. You know, not so much in the headlines, but what's going on uh, in the murky you know, uh, underpinnings of, oh, of our history as well as like present day, what's going on right now. Um, you know, I love the, uh, the interplay of this type of stuff. Um, there's a fellow named Christopher Knowles who does a blog called The Secret Sun where he looks at the influences of pop culture and how they are uh, intertwined with ancient mythology, especially ancient Egyptian mythology, and it's just fascinating. Um, and he's on to something, though at the same time it's so ephemeral that it could be very easily dismissed um, you know, by you know, anyone you know, claiming logical thought. Sure. Sure. You know, I wanted to address something, too, that you asked from the beginning, because I, I, I don't want to go away feeling like I uh, disappointed you on uh, the question, but uh, you asked, uh, you, you know, you brought up the, the things we said and what we experienced and, and how it changed us, and, you know, I was saying it kind of introduced me to the presence, um, it, well, it introduced me to the presence of Hecate out there, I, I can tell you, and um, I, last year, and I didn't realize I was doing it in uh, the, the improper forum, but I, I, I felt like I had been kind of baited, and I was asked, uh, I, I had mentioned something, and I brought it up in a lighthearted tone to, you know, just keep things light, and boy, was I lambasted and attacked for even saying what I said, but it had to do with um, an experience I had while investigating you know, all the weirdness associated with the ley lines, something that I happened to see. And um, it was misunderstood. So that makes me kind of reticent to say certain things in a public forum, if you know, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But um, it's it certainly, you know, I want to reemphasize, you know, what I told you earlier, and you can edit this in however you want. Um, you know, I, I indeed experienced... Uh, plenty of personal weirdness um, during the phase when I first latched onto this, during the phase, you know, after I started talking with Rick because his book, Secret Agent 666, seemed to fill a big hole or, or, or open up a whole new aspect of this mystery. And then, you know, the whole time this was being researched and, and written, you know, indeed, I was experiencing some very strange things. But as I said before, we didn't go into that in the book because, you know, we feel like the book is about what it's about. And um, in all honesty, you know, I kind of, I want people to take the book seriously, you know. And if you get too much into, you know, I saw Bigfoot. Uh, Did you see Bigfoot? Things. No, I didn't. Okay, just wondering. That's, <laughs> I, mean, I. I, would, I would find that interesting. So. <laughs> you know, if you get too much into that, then people will, you know, they'll not be able to see the forest for the trees. And... Um, so, you know, maybe down the road I might, in another form, write about, you know, those experiences. But I will say this. This is part of the experience of Hecate. Um, experiencing Hecate. Um, you know, Hecate is associated with Isis. She's considered to be Isis. And um, if you go to um, 
uh, Manly P. Hall's book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, you can see where he discusses the admonition of Isis, and that is when she lifts her veil to show you her true nature, you are to tell no one. This is her admonition. Tell no one. And I feel like I kind of learned the hard way telling a little bit so I, I, I kind of it's like taking the fifth I'll take Isis's admonition and I think on a serious level I think part of experiencing these things and getting the bigger picture and in pulling the threads um, if you really truly want to learn more about certain truths um, you do have to sacrifice the telling everybody about it you, you basically you're sacrificing the notoriety or whatever you want to call it and it it it's kind of the personal experience it's kind of like it is revealed to you and it's meant for you and if anybody else wants to experience it it's there for the experiencing but it's up to the individual themselves to go seeking it I couldn't possibly duplicate the experience for anyone else by telling them they have to get out there in that weird field of the world and kind of touch it, feel it themselves, and then they'll know. So um, you you have to be there. I guess that's what we could. Absolutely, you yeah, gotta be. I mean, there. I, and I'm not making light of that either. But I mean, I, there are a lot of things like that. I I understand what you mean. That you know, there are just certain things that you have to be there, and if you're not there, you're not going to get it. And that's I will right. also say that for reasons unknown, the uh, paranormal. And, it, and this is going through my personal experiences and what people have shared to me. And when I say paranormal, the majority of my research has been around uh, the UFO phenomena, is that these experiences uh, tend to be intensely personal. And, and it does not surprise me that your journey through this, this story of the San Bernardino uh, uh, set of experiences uh, unfolded in a way that felt um, directed at you in a way that felt personal. And I'm sure there were events that felt that they were directed at you, as as does any synchronicity. It feels extremely personal. Sometimes it's so personal that no one understands it when you try to explain your own personal synchronicities. Exactly. And, and you know, lest anyone think that, you know, the experiencer is feeling like there's something special, that as an individual, these things are available to everyone. It's just we went back to, earlier. I said something about you know maybe some people don't experience certain phenomena because they're just not interested in it. Okay, fine. The phenomena will not show itself to the person who's not interested. But it, I guarantee you, if you're curious about it, if you're interested for whatever reason, I was investigating what I thought were serial murders. Oh yeah, it'll stand up and let itself be known. Now, what the nature of that experience is is up for you to decide. You know, some people would say it's all mental. Others would say, you know, I will say that what I saw had to do, I was in a specific geographical location, and what I saw was a physical phenomenon. And did it involve crows? It actually did involve crows. Ah. There were crows, there were crows present. Uh, but that, Mike, that's a, you know the crow thing. <laughs> the, 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 the crow thing runs through this, and that's another part of the background that um, you know 
And the but reason I, I say it, that is because I just listened to the interview we did uh, a little over a year ago. It was actually on Friday the 13th of August of last year. Oh, it was. Yeah, yeah Friday. There we have it. That's right. Yeah, so uh, in, in uh, the topic of crows came up, and you talked about uh, you were working on a project, which was this project we're discussing right now. And you hinted that, you know, like in crows were the, the significance of the crows and the way they would appear in your life as a, as a marker or as a signpost or as a direction was uh is very similar to what i have in my life uh with owls and don't don't ask me Ah, why or what that might mean but well i i will i will tell you and i would suggest this to anybody all the stuff we're talking about all these experiences you know my mentor told me a long time ago and and i pass this along to everybody keep a sense of humor about all of this Uh, i mean i i'll be honest with you when when something i think might be weird is happening, I get a good laugh because you know what I, I. One part of me says, "Okay, this is nature in my psyche playing, having a little fun at my expense." They're they're joking around with me, and I find humor is a very big part of this. You, you have to, or or you will go crazy with this stuff. I, I, mean, agree. I know people that take it way too seriously, and. Um, they they kind of go crazy with it and uh, don't do that don't ruin your life you know you're you're here the reason you're here is to experience this physical experience this this day-to-day experience you know with other human beings your family and your loved ones and stuff like that that's the reason we're here really um and i i and that i have come to believe that more in my experience with all this weirdness to be that that's one of the changes you asked about changes i have come to understand that even greater that Really, the whole human experience is the whole human experience. There, there is no, there is no um, utopia. That you know, we we we're not going to create a utopia. Things aren't going to suddenly just one day be all perfect. Uh, that that's not the point of all this. The point of all of our whole lives is this struggle and all the 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 crap we go through because it's how we react to it and how it develops us. So really, you know, I hope that, not trying to sound cheesy, but all this stuff is fun. All this spooky, goofy stuff is fun. And I think it's important and I don't think it's supposed to be ignored, but never forget to keep a sense of humor about it and never forget that the mundane things you do in your life with your kids, whatever, you know, that is really the big purpose, you know, why we're here doing this. So for what that's worth. And that's good advice, especially for me, who can get sort of bogged down in this. I t- sometimes I can I find it I get a, I, the uh, I get dragged under a little bit. And uh, ah, go have a beer and go 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 to a baseball game. You yeah, know? no, no, I've been <laughs> I've been uh, spending a lot of time in the mountains this summer, and it's been a great therapy. And uh, and and uh, I will also say, like, it's kind of hard to have a sense of humor about serial murders, but uh, um, I, well, I do that, see what you're saying. That part's that part's not funny. Yeah, and that's why some of us do the job we do. Um, You'll have a rebound at some point where you need you need to have a belly laugh. Yeah, if our book is right, and you know the Zodiac killer was attacking people, killing them on these ley lines, and it can lead to where you know the 37 other victims he claimed are out there, and it could lead to maybe identifying that sob and uh, taking away some of the luster of the his his magic. um, Then I'll feel like I did probably a pretty important thing as a 
you know, former criminal investigator, you know, by by stumbling upon this one day, looking at the maps, you know, that's that's a serious contribution. You're you're right. It's not all fun and games. There's some pretty grim aspects to human life, but that's also part of it. And you know, when other people do rotten things, how the rest of us react to that and respond to that—that's also part of why we're here. You know, so. and I think it's also worth remembering that some people, and some non-people perhaps have a very weird sense of humor. True. Yeah, there's some darkness out there. Yeah. Hey, I just want to thank you so much. This has gone on, kind of getting, we're getting close to two hours. I just want to thank you for taking the time, and, and uh, this has been great. I think this is a good companion to the book. I think folks who read the book will uh, get a lot out of this interview, and uh, uh, I enjoyed the book greatly. And one of the things that, uh, once again, just having read this book back-to-back with Seshery's book uh, was, was a really neat experience for me as, as, uh, as someone looking into these things. Well, thanks again for having us on. It's been a pleasure talking to you and, and, and with Walter again. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Always, always good to be here. This is Mike chiming in during the editing. Hey, uh, at this point, we were saying our goodbyes after what I thought was a pretty good interview, and um, we kept on talking. Uh, the conversation turned to uh, Sesh Hari, who wrote the book Handprint of Atlas, and also did some work with uh, with Walter and Richard on the book Empire of the Wheel. So his name came up, and uh, and we talked about him for a little bit, which was great, and I, and I just want to make sure to include that here. Here you go. Well, it's it's definitely um, with with Sesh, you know, his work, his research will will really it'll raise your eyebrows and it will um, open your eyes to some very interesting things and and you'll learn how to go with it from there on your own and what it means to you. Um, I do some things which kind of freaks him out a little bit. For me, it's just kind of like eh, it's just another thing I'm looking at. It doesn't scare me as much. I don't put as much, um, um, I don't know what the word is, but uh, I, I just, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't freak me out that much. I'm kind of, I'm kind of fascinated with it. It, it you know, it draws me intellectually and uh, because there, there's always some interesting little, little point there that, Again, it comes back to these things mean something to the individual. I used to take it wrong, like Rick was saying earlier, you know, the phrase when people say it's a personal thing. I used to automatically think that that was just people being nice when you were telling them this wacky story that they couldn't relate to and they think you're crazy, but they don't want to tell you you're crazy. So they're, well, that, you know, that's, and I used to think that every time somebody said that, that's what it meant. I don't anymore. Now I get it. Now I understand that it's like, okay, they're not, they just don't know what to do with what you've laid in their lap. And yeah, they're being polite, but not in a nefarious way. It's like, God, what do I do with that? You know, because it truly is a personal experience intended for you. And it doesn't make it less real. It just means that it was your personal weird experience and that individual you're telling it's not their personal weird experience. And um, I find it even more fascinating, that aspect, that, oh, okay, maybe there are things I'm intended to get because the guy next to me, there's things he's intended to get and there's things Rick's intended to get that have nothing to do with me and things you're intended to get that have nothing to do with me. Exactly, you know? and I agree, I agree. There's something wrapped up in this phenomenon that which which is mystifying at the same time is very seductive because these well, things yeah. do unfold you know like the the crows seem to 
plague me, or excuse me, plague you, and the owl seemed to plague me. So. Maybe if we I just, could I just say hello to him and, and go about my business. I was going to say that maybe if we could all compare notes too closely, we'd figure out something that we're not supposed to figure out. Yeah, and that was the flavor of this of the story, I thought. Yeah. Well, of, yeah. Of this, there, of that part of the wheel. Uh, yeah, there's the possibility. It does suggest that there's something going on um, that uh, we're not all supposed to know about. And and again, that's where for me the fun is. As a, and, and this is my difference between um, Sesheri and he'll tell you, I'm a criminal investigator. My my job was to go after people doing rotten things, right? So. Yeah, it's part of my nature. It turns me on. Oh, here, I've got an asshole over here doing something wrong. Oh, golly, that's the guy I want to I wanna follow that. You know, I, I, I want to catch this guy. I want to, you know, and, and for me, for me, the, you know, the serial killer aspect and, and the actual boots on the ground crime aspect of this, even the intelligence world part of it, that really turns me on about this because I'm coming from the angle of, by gosh, if I can expose something and maybe prevent it, from happening, you know, to someone else, that's a good thing, you know. So that that's where the real turn on, the ultimate turn on for me is 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 a bad guy did something bad. Let's put light on it. Maybe we, you know, somebody else won't do it. Yeah, so. fascinating stuff. It hey, is. Anyway. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks again, both of you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks again. Bye bye. Uh, this is Mike here chiming in at the end during the editing process. That was uh, Walter Bosley and his co-author Richard Spence, and we were talking about the book Empire of the Wheel. And it is a true crime story uh, focusing on a case that took place in 1915. I encourage you to review the show notes because there's some links there, which uh, if you enjoyed this interview, those links will help you a lot. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.